Paul is telling us we can expect from God. We can expect a powerful life, life in the Holy Spirit, and then a particular life in 8.14, and we've worked through some of these, and this is it. The particular life we can have is a life of sonship or daughtership. Sonship, 8.14 to 17. That the life of the follower of Jesus, we can expect to be a daughter or son, not a slave or a servant. And that, that's a really important section right there when Paul says, we've not received the spirit of slavery to fear again, but we received the spirit of adoption where we may cry, Abba, Father. And not only that, but we're heirs of God. And so this family of filial, familia kind of idea of this is what you can expect, a particular kind of life, not the life of drudgery and servant and slavery. Second, we looked at, it's interesting to me, and also in 18 it begins, a life of, if you will, some level of suffering. You, you ought to notice there in 18, and again, notice in verse 18, he says, the sufferings of this present time. It's interesting to me that after Paul declares this wonderful life of sonship and daughtership, and, and if this wonderful life of being an heir and a joint heir with Christ, he doesn't avoid the issue of suffering. When so many people, you know, when they think because they're loved by God and because they're a child of God and because they've given Christ their life that, well, everything's going to be great now. You know, all our kids are going to be born with straight teeth. You know, n no problems. Well, Paul won't have any of that. He won't have any of that. He's saying, look, I, look, okay, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're an heir, but there is this matter of suffering. It's not worth to be compared. And then he goes through that, and we work through this. In 22, he says... Or writes, we know that the whole creation is groaning and suffering. I made the statement like this is this really comes down to what kind of world do you live in? <laughs> My dad asked me that lots of times. <laughs> when I would do something, he'd say, Hey, boy, what kind of world do you think you're living in? And I said, Your world. <laughs> yeah, big Marv's world. That's the world I knew I lived in. Well, what kind of world do we live in? Fallen. We live in a world that's groaning, struggling under the weight of the fallenness of, that sin has brought in the world. And Paul will not avoid that. And then he writes in 23, we ourselves are groaning. We ourselves are groaning, if you will. The reality of the struggle, the reality of suffering, if you will, that, that we're groaning in this way. And so the suffering. And then Paul comes out. In this area, the last one is supply. And I'm, that's just, again, a memory device for me. What can you expect in this particular life? Sonship, suffering, and supply. And that's where we're going today. This idea of supply. Because notice, I drew some attention to it, but I want to dial down on it. In verse 26, Paul makes this, uh, writes this, in the same way that's related backwards to the way the world is suffering and groaning. That's related to in the same way that we are suffering and groaning, right? So he says, look, in the same way of what? In the way the universe is struggling and groaning and in the way that we are suffering and groaning, the Spirit also helps us with our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us with what? Groanings. Here's supply in the midst of suffering. You're not by yourself. You're, it isn't just, well, this is a terrible world and it's groaning, but one day we'll get to go to heaven. That'd be okay. But this is the notion that there is supply now for this matter. There is supply. 
And again, I'm just trying to work us forward here because I want to deal with this from 26 to 39, not today. <laughs> this would be like whiplash if I did that. 26 to 39. Now, in this area of supply, that's what we're going to be working with for the next who knows how long. <clears throat> we're just, I'm flexible. <laughs> and also rabbit trail-y. <laughs> I just want you to notice something here. And this is per my assessment. It doesn't mean, you know, you have to buy all of it. But there, there is something fascinating that happens beginning at verse 26. Where Paul begins to say this matter of supply. Even though we're in a world that's suffering. Even though we're suffering ourselves. We have the Spirit who is groaning for us. And I would just like for you to, if you want to, in verse 26... The word spirit shows up. In verse 28, the word God shows up. I'm going to suggest that is a reference to God the Father. And then in verse 34, the word or the, the name Christ Jesus shows up. What if? What if? What Paul is trying to end this great chapter on is to say, you are supplied by every member of the Trinity. Every member of the Trinity is involved in here. And so I want us to consider that. See, in 26, the Spirit is praying. Verse 28, the Father is working. And 34, the Son is interceding. Those are some fascinating thoughts. I just I, that's kind of, I want to give you the big picture here first. You know, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, when we get ready to go somewhere, I, when I use Google, uh, I got shamed not long ago when I said that I'd use MapQuest. And somebody came and said, who uses MapQuest? I'm an old guy. I still have an AOL account <laughs> somewhere. Uh, you know, when, 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 I, when I put some uh, coordinates in to go somewhere, as soon as I put those coordinates in, the map comes up where I see the whole thing. You know, am I really going to Garden City or am I going to Boyce City? <clears throat> you know, there's the big picture. I need to see that first. And then I can start and say, okay, I know where I'm going. And I'll take those individual stuff. What I'm trying to say here is this. I want to ask you, what if, what if, that in this final section, we get the big picture, that the supply that God is providing for us, what can we expect from Him? All the members of the Trinity to be involved in our lives. He's not at distance He's present. Each member of the Trinity has some function and work to do. Now, I, uh, I, I, I want to work at this. And thought, I, I, I wrote my notes, or my, my, this is my thought. Why not talk about the Trinity today? What a dumb idea. <laughs> we'll be here for six months. <clears throat> yeah. Because <clears throat> the Trinity is in many ways the unique understanding of God from a Christian standpoint. The Trinity is uniquely Christian, the way we think about God. I was doing a little work, because I got to think about that. I thought, okay, we'll do that. And then I want to introduce you to a friend of mine here in just a second, uh, Dr. Greg Robertson. Uh, Greg is here down front. He's going to come here and say, Greg's a good friend. Greg uh, went to Gulf Coast Bible College back in Houston, where I went. Fantastic school. Wonderful school. Then he went to a couple other little schools like Princeton and a couple of places like that. I just, you know, I thought, well, we prepared you. 
<laughs> that was no big deal. Big deal. It reminds me down in southwest, southeastern Oklahoma, a guy says to his daughter, to a friend, hey, where'd your daughter go to school? He said, Yale. And he went, hey, where'd your daughter go to school? <laughs> That's a Dick Greenlee joke. I don't know if it's true, but it sounds like it. Anyway, I'm at the house. Greg's staying with us because our church of God, our tribe's having a convention here for the next few days. And I'm sitting there pounding away on the Trinity. Greg teaches systematic theology at our seminary. He's a constructive theologian. And I thought, that's like me doing a math problem, having Albert Einstein in the bedroom. <laughs> right? So I've asked Greg to come on up here. And this is Dr. Greg Roberts. Why don't you welcome him here? <clears throat> okay. Carl Rahner, uh, who was a Roman Catholic theologian, the last century, made the observation that most Christians are functionally Unitarians. That we tend to view God as one thing. But Cliff's right, the Christian God is the triune God. And so part of what I try and help students do is to move away from thinking of God as an abstract being and to begin to think about who God is in terms of God's self-revelation. This God who's acted for us in the Son and through the power of the Spirit I find it intriguing. It's the self-same spirit that now indwells us. So we have the hope of newness of life. <clears throat> now, when it comes to thinking of the doctrine of the Trinity as a grammar, what does grammar do? <clears throat> it what? Confuses. <laughs> it confuses you? <laughs> okay, communicates. Okay, give structure, clarifies. Okay, when did you first start learning grammar? <laughs> well, you start learning grammar, and really what we have to realize is that we're talking about grammar, we're talking about what's known as a sub-discipline of descriptive grammar. Um, you start learning grammar when you go to first grade, don't you? And start telling you what nouns are and what verbs are. Okay. Did you speak English before you got to first grade? Or whatever tongue you have as your first language? Okay. So why do we need to learn grammar? Well, it helps us communicate more clearly and succinctly. Okay. So what would it mean to think of the doctrine of the Trinity as grammar? Um, we all come to Christ and come to know who God is, even before we can even think about speaking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I need to point out, the doctrine of the Trinity is the development of the church. It's part of the church's tradition. And as such, we have to compare it to Scripture and say, is it consistent with what we find Scripture saying about who God is? I think we do. That's one of the reasons why I concentrate on the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and so... The Trinity as grammar is giving us some guidelines for how we should read Scripture and how we should think when we read Scripture. And part of what it's asking us to do is when we talk and read in Scripture about God the Father, I think most of us will go, yes, that's God. Okay? The other thing it's asking us to do as well is when we read about Jesus of Nazareth, that we recognize this is not just another human being. 
yes, he is a human, but he's also fully God. And when we read about the Spirit of God, then again, we have to remind ourselves that we're talking here about the God who has redeemed us and is transforming us and will eventually conform us to the image of Christ. And so as grammar, what the doctrine of Trinity does is just reminding us as we're reading Scripture, who is this God who we're talking about? It's not an abstract idea of a God. It's a God who has an enacted identity. A God who has chosen to be our God. And not only to be our God, but to be our God in a very particular way. Our God by redeeming us. Does that help? Yeah. Questions? <laughs> Do you start off thinking about God as triune? Yeah, we tend not to because <clears throat> we have a cultural understanding of God that is oftentimes at odds with the Christian understanding of God. And so culturally we're told to think about this God as either a judge or a big teddy bear rather than one who loves us enough when we hated him to act for us in our salvation. So the doctrine of Trinity is at the heart of who we understand God to be as Christians. I've said a couple of times, I don't always understand Greg, but man, I'm glad he's on our side. <laughs> Again, grammar. Like I have an question. That's not the way it works, right? I have an question. We would know that's an incorrect way to speak. So with the Trinity understanding, we know this is an incorrect way to speak about God. Or is it a correct way? Now, I have an icon here for you to look at. Pam Barton, this is for you. <clears throat> this is a really famous, it's by a, a painter called Rebelev. And I don't know if this helps you or not, because I think three in one is part of the difficulty. But this has been an icon that people have used forever. You'll notice that all the faces are the same. All the faces are the same. <clears throat> that they all have a staff in their hand, which recognizes authority. And they all are sort of, if you will, not looking at each other from the stand of what we call deferential love. I, I, I said it this way. I, I don't think you can get to God is love. You, you can't get to God is love without the Trinity. Because God was God before he created anything. And he was love among, God was love among themselves before there was any creation. To say that God is love is to actually stipulate the Trinity. Because that's who God is. And in deferential love to one another, they defer. They defer. The Father defers to the Son. The Son defers to the Spirit. The Spirit defers to the Father. Maybe that helps. I have this on my phone. I look at it and I just say, you know, here is this attempt. Now, if you're interested, and Greg can take you deeper than I can. If you're interested in this, what we're dealing with is what we're calling the economic trinity. That which we know about God because of revelation. The imminent trinity is the understanding of the individual inworkings of God himself, which are inaccessible to us. The imminent trinity of this aspect of who God is, in, if you boil, say this, boil him down, the DNA. But this understanding that God, we stipulate, is trinity. Not three different persons, but three in one. 
You'll notice here also on this um, icon that is very famous by Ribolev, in the middle there is a chalice with the head of a lamb that looks forward to the incarnation of Jesus. And so this, this notion that this God that we know and we can speak about because of revelation, not because of investigation or simply just uh, philosophically working this out, but by revealing himself is how we learn to talk about him. So here's what I want to do. Oh, yes. Go back to the painting. Yes. If you think about this in terms of Philippians 2, mm. where... I can do this. I was suggesting one of the places we see the scripturally is in Philippians 2, um, where the son, though he's the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. The imagery there is of a child, like with a cookie. You can't take it from me. Um, in that passage, the son works simply to glorify the father. And the father, at the end of it, elevates and glorifies the Son so that in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So none of the persons of the Trinity are pointing to themselves. They're all pointing to the other. Yeah, that, that's that deferential kind of love. When Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will not speak of himself, but of me. I, I just said, you cannot come to God is love outside of Trinitarian theology. Or you just have to say, well, God is loving. When he has something to love, then he loves it. Or his experience or God's experience of Trinity means there is always love among the members of the Trinity from time eternity. Nobody had to be created in order for that to happen. Nobody had to be. God was God before creation. Now, I grew up in Sunday school and VBS, you know, because God created us. Why? Because he was lonely, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. He created us because he knew what the joy we would experience in experiencing him. That's what he created. Because he knew the joy we would experience that God had experienced in the members of the Trinity would now be exposed to human beings. They would enjoy the same kind of deferring love. So this is a really big deal, guys. Again, we don't all understand it. We just finally bump up against it. But to say that if you're going to assert that God is love, it has to come out of Trinitarian theology. So what we're looking at here in our passage then are these members. Now, I said that's the big picture. We'll get there in a few weeks. We're going to start with one. Here we go. Number one, the Spirit is praying for us. What can we expect from God in this particular life is that the Spirit is praying for us. He said in the same way, this idea of weakness, of difficulty, we, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. Now, notice, or not, I'm sorry, not weakness. I'm sorry, put an extra... There. What's our weakness? The Greek word asthenia here means to have less power, to not have power. It's not sinful. It's not, it's not, it's not being sinful. It's not being uh, bad. It, it, it means to not have power. What's, what is it? It's right there. Look at the word right after that. If you're reading the New American Standard... What is it? For. For. Remember, every time you see the word for, that word suggests a reason or a cause for what has previously been asserted. There's an assertion been made. The Spirit helps us in, our, in the same way in our weaknesses. That's the assertion. That's the declaration. Now, here comes the evidence. What's our weakness? 
We don't know how to pray as we should. Can I get an amen here somewhere? We don't know how to pray as we should. I, uh, some years ago, I probably told you this, I, I, uh, with Dan Reineke, we, I just, you know, I decided I'm going to call Richard Rohr and I'm going to say I want to meet him. And uh, his secretary said, uh, well, Father Rohr doesn't meet with individuals. I said, well, I need to meet with him. And I persisted. No. <laughs> and he relented. <laughs> so Dan and I one morning got flew out to Albuquerque and had two hours with him. And I said to him, Father Rohr, Brother Rohr, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> I don't know how to pray anymore. I don't know how to pray anymore. I used to know everything. <laughs> Do you all remember that time when you did that? When you knew everything? What happened there? I, knew, I used to know everything. You could just ask me. Ask Wayne Bolenbach or Linda. They've been around me a long time. I knew it all. Okay. I said, I, I don't know how to pray. He said, oh, that's wonderful. And I thought, okay, he's Roman Catholic in you. <laughs> he said, you're growing. And I said... And the most, you know, he's a scholar. And I said, it don't feel like it. <laughs> he said, Cliff, before you use prayer to control God. To tell him what to do. To instruct him as if he needed your guidance. And you now have matured some and grown some. To where you go to him now. And you listen lots more than you talk. And you come to him to say, I'm not sure I know what to say here. It made sense. I didn't like it. Flew all the way to Albuquerque to hear that stupidity. I could have figured that out on my own. I, I, I'm telling you, I, I don't know. I, I'm not saying I don't pray. No, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not saying I don't pray. I don't say, well, I don't know how to pray, so that's it. But I come at it in a completely different way now. Humbly. I, I, I'm, I'm learning more and more. I, I just, uh, I think uh, a part of our evangelical faith that's messed us up is we don't think posture is important. And I'm coming to the point I think it is. More and more. To kneel. I, t I told you, I, I don't pray anymore unless I'm confessing sin like that. Because I see Jesus all the time when he prays, lifting his head up. This morning when, when uh, Chris is his name, right? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, um, I don't pray like that anymore. I pray like this. Not always my eyes open because it scares people you're around, you know, like that. <laughs> But I'm asking God to see my face. See my face. Here I am. I'm just here. I may not have a lot of things to talk about. See, Paul says, we don't know how to pray. That's your weakness, my weakness. Not, it's not some other goofy thing. I mean, we may have some of those too. But <laughs> right here, it's the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Now watch this. The Spirit helps our weakness. I... I when Greg asked the question, 
When did you learn grammar? Uh, when I took Greek. I didn't, know, I didn't know a preposition from a participle or a pineapple until <laughs> I took Greek, my junior in college. And, and when I look at these terms and see this, I, I just want you to notice up this word helps. This is the vacuous nature of English. The word helps. Or I don't have their translations. The Spirit, in the same way the Spirit, helps our weaknesses. It's a fascinating word. Uh, this word helps. The, again, it's the Spirit of God, the, the third person of the Trinity. You see, we're groaning. The this, this Spirit's groaning. But it says He helps us. Here's the Greek word. Soon anti lambanatai. Impressed, huh? I didn't go to Yale. No. <laughs> the word helps is a translation of the Greek term that means this. With you, on the other side of the problem... Lifting. And we get helps. <laughs> it's a word picture. Soon, with, anti, on the other side, lambanatai, lambano, lifting. That's what the Spirit's doing. You can lift all you want to. You can be there. But He's on the other side, lifting what you can't. Yes. Okay, look. Yeah. For the sake of the recording, the question here is that the idea is that Satan can't hear our, read our thoughts or our minds, uh, uh, but he can only hear our words, so we confess or say something. Why, why would, if, the, if, let's say that's true, why would that be true? Remember again, the devil is a created being, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent. Right? What's the opposite of the devil? Not God. Michael, the angel. So I concur, concur with that, that I don't think the devil can read your mind. I don't think he can know your thoughts. I don't think he's, you know, plus people when they talk about the devil's act, they say, no, he's not. He's only one guy. He's got some helpers, but he's on somebody really big, like the head of state somewhere or somebody's really doing something bad. He, he's not omnipresent. So I would agree with that in principle to say, he can't. Can't hear your thoughts. Can't. That's, that's why some people would say, and I, I don't want to go too far. That's why some people would say, be careful what you say. He can hear that. Is that where the importance is of the Spirit praying for us sometimes? I don't think so. No. I don't, I don't think that's it. I don't think uh, it's like a secret, uh, you know, code message. It's simply saying that because of our weakness of not knowing what, the Spirit helps us. He prays. He intercedes for us. With Now notice here. He says, for we don't know how to pray, he intercedes for us. And by the way, this inter word intercede, uh, it's interesting because the tense of it, the tense of it is present durative. It means he's interceding and keeps on interceding. Interceding and keeps on interceding. Interceding and keeps on interceding. The, the, the idea here may be the idea that, that even when you're asleep, he's interceding. That even when you're not asking, he's interceding. That, that, that even when you feel like... Nothing in the world's happening. He's interceding. It's a present durative. It means he intercedes and he keeps on interceding. So he says here, he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, some people associate this with a prayer language or something out of a, 
of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. Uh, I'm not convinced of that because it says it's too deep for words. I would say this is too deep for utterance. The word here, the idea of words is not, they're not some strange words or different words. It's so deep, it doesn't have vocal expression. Have you ever had something like that happen to you before? I, I had something happen to me some time ago, and it was just like I got kicked in the stomach, and it just like I went, mm, right, emotionally. And so, so Paul says here, he's interceding for us with groanings to the Now watch this, verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we can rest in the fact that this life, what we expect from God, is that the Spirit of God is praying a prayer that knows the mind and the heart of God and knows our heart and is interceding for us. Boy, that's a lot of comfort to me. I, you know, I, there are a lot of times when I pray, I, I don't maybe, you know, I've, I've come back, who's done this? Hey, God, you know that prayer I prayed about six months ago? Whoo, am I glad you didn't answer that. <laughs> yes. Anybody me? Right? Right. Becky, don't raise your hand. No. <laughs> Like you said, 38 years ago. No. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, this idea that, that God is smarter than we are, that he understands our hearts and our minds, and that we're not attempting to control him. I love what Carl uh, Barth said. I did that for Greg. Greg did his doctorate in Bart. We always call it Barth. Uh, he said, God makes himself our advocate with himself. God makes himself our advocate with himself. If we really read the scriptures and read who this God really is, hey, there's only one conclusion we can come away with. This God is better to you and me than we ever thought. This God is more for us than we could ever imagine. This God is more in our corner. I love what Dick said last week. Even when you do something stupid or like that, God is still there saying, come on, come on. You know, like his little grandson. I love that. You know, we want certainty. We want all the answers. And God said, just give me your hand and shut. He didn't say that. Give me your hand and follow me. He should say that. Just give me your hand and follow me. So that we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit is able to pray for us. I can't tell you the number of times I've just gone to prayer and just said, Lord, I, I'm very thankful you know my mind and my heart, and you know what I need. It doesn't mean make it doesn't make prayer unnecessary. I'm not, I'm not saying prayer is unnecessary. It's fellowship, it's union, it's communion. But I'm coming to God and saying, I have confidence that you know how to interpret this, and you know how to make what needs to happen here. I'm telling you now. Let me let me give you the flip. Let me give you the flip side of this though. Uh, years ago, uh, after Becky had cancer, she went back to the doctor. I kept telling her, quit doing that, you know, because every time we go, they find something. If, if, you, if you have insurance. And, uh, <laughs> right. And so uh, we got some word that there might be something happening here. Of course, very concerned. But one of my life verses is Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that says this. Don't be anxious about anything. That's nuts. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. I love that flip. Don't, make sure, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known to God. This verse should not cause us to just become a slug in prayer and never say what we want. The, 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 the scripture says, let your... So we, we that, I remember that night we just said, look, we didn't say look. Uh, we, as we're praying, uh, we're praying, we're saying, God, this is what we want. We want Becky to be well. I mean, we're not going to, we're going to do the first part. Don't worry. As hard as that is there, be anxious. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. This verse is not, again, an attempt to cause you to not pray, to, to just kind of give us, well, Spirit's praying for me, not great. But to know that when we come to prayer, that even when we have to say, Lord, I don't really even know what to do, you're not wasting your time. One of the things that I'm really concerned about for my students is are we teaching them how to pray? And we were teaching them theology and homiletics and all those other kind of things, but how about prayer? Or how about this to say, it's okay for you to come to the end of your rope and just come to God in prayer and say, I don't know what to ask, but I know you're praying for me. Greg, you're in it. Say. Yes. Temptation here of the, that what Adam and Eve did is they tried to determine what good and evil was among themselves. There's a great book on that by Greg Boyd uh, called Repenting of Religion on that very topic of how we have tried to live independent of God. Sir? Yeah, he's asking the question, if the rain falls on the just and the edge, what's the outcome of effective prayer? Stuart, I really am working on that for a, I'm serious, uh, working on that because one of the things is I want to deal with on question four is what can you expect from God in prayer? And I really want to work through that. Um, my off-the-cuff, not, not, I haven't thought about it, it's not that I haven't thought about it, but my off the, is to say this. I think this comes back to the function of prayer, which is both fellowship and uh, uh, provision. Jesus said, ask. I mean, you can't make prayer only about fellowship. And that's what some people want to do. Well, you didn't get what you needed. You didn't ask for. It's just fellowship. No, Jesus made too many comments about prayer it has to do with meeting needs and concerns. It's a mystery to me. Why, in some cases, that the provision is met in the way that we pray and ask for. This is where, again, I think we come back to the notion that prayer has this dual feature. I, I'm going to try to answer some of that more, more specifically. I, that's probably not a good answer, but I'm, I'm going to try to. But I think you have to keep in mind, you can't make prayer only about fellowship. And you can't only make it about provision. It is a dialectic of tension here of, of what is the function or the reality of it. Now, let me say this. You know, I uh, appreciate your prayers for my family that my sister-in-law died and we were back in Florida. And I cannot subscribe to the notion, though, because I, I have friends and people uh, that, that argue this strong side of provision 
Ask and you shall receive. Get it. You're going to get what you want. That God is so small and so, uh, the word, I got a couple words. I want to say them. He's so picky that he would have given me what I asked for, but I just didn't ask right. Or didn't have enough faith. In fact, I remember praying for Lottie. And just saying to Jesus, is it enough faith for me just to come to you? Isn't that enough? There's something here, Stuart. I'm wrestling, working through it. We're going to work through it. Enough faith, the right words, all those kind of matters. So I'm not saying that we don't pray. We don't tell God what we want. But at some point, we humble ourselves to say, you're God and I'm not. You're God and I'm not. And as much as I think you should do this and you better do this, you're still God. So it's a mystery. This is the one area in this fourth question that I've been digging in hard on. What if you do this this week? Here's a, an application for you. What if you, this week you begin your prayer time saying, I'm thankful I have a partner in this prayer time. Say it out loud. When you go to prayer, however you do that, whether it's in the morning or the evening or in the middle of the day when you're driving to work, I don't know. What if you just said, look, I am so thankful. I have a partner in prayer. A prayer partner. That God, that God is interceding, groaning. Notice this word here. According to the will of God. I don't always know what that means. We're going to look at that because in verse 28, Paul gets even more deep into that. That our trust and our faith in him is that he really is interceding continually. It'd be interesting to think about this. Uh, how, how, how much is the Spirit praying for you today? How much is He involved in your concerns, in your needs, in your life? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I. I don't, I don't want to disturb you too bad, but, you know, over the years I've tried to, to uh, work through this. Uh, I remember in Houston, um, see if I get this straight in my mind. You know, the answers are yes, no, wait. I think there's a fourth one. I haven't heard many people talk about this, so it could be wrong. The thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, its elders, or leadership. <laughs> I can't. I can't. So, lady in our church in Houston, <clears throat> this comes back to lots of things of motive and all that. Said she lived a she she lived a pretty tough life. Her, her husband was a knucklehead. Nobody denied that. And it was tough for her. It was. And I remember her telling me, 
and pretty strong things, you know, God has got to save my husband. He's got to. He has to make him become a Christian. And I thought, well, that's not the way this works. God can't make him be a Christian, right? Can he? I mean, yeah. Can't make him. That's not the way this, the universe is structured. That's not the way God decided, designed the way this thing works. So I, I can't do that. Can't make them. I'll, 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 I'll appeal to them. I'll draw them. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I do for everyone through the Spirit. But I, you know. And then the other thought here occurred to me, and it's probably why I'm not a pastor. But I said, you know, <clears throat> let's, let's dig down a little deeper. And, you know, here, according to the will of God, that's what it says, the prayer here. Do, do you want him to get saved so it will bring glory to God? And he'll live a life of honor to God? Or do you want to get saved because it's going to make your life a whole lot easier? Again, that's why I'm not a pastor. <laughs> I ask those stupid questions. I said to him, I said, look, we're not only dealing with what God has committed himself that he can't do. He can't make somebody do something. You know, he can't make you do, can he? Can he make you do the right thing? No. We say, well, God, do anything. No, he can't. He can't make you do the right thing. He can't do that. And related to that was, is, are you praying this for the will of God? Or do you know that now he's going to be a better husband, help you take care of the kids, provide better, quit drinking you know, on Saturday night and spending money at the bar? That's a tough one. That sometimes God has to work our motives around till we get to the point to say, hey, I, I, I want this for God's glory and God's good and for the, the good of life. Yeah, Eric. I'd say he can't because he chose at the creation of the world that he wouldn't. There are things God can't do, right? He can't lie. Hebrews 6, God who cannot lie. That's what it says right there in the text. He cannot lie. There are other things God can't do. You know, he can't deny himself. 1 Timothy 4. He cannot deny himself. So this notion is that because of the way God... Look, I say it this way. Say, I know now Cliff doesn't believe in sovereignty. No, I believe this. God is sovereign over his sovereignty. He decided this. Not me, not you. He decided how he would limit himself in interacting with human beings. Nobody twisted his arm. Nobody did that. Now... Causes us to ask the question, why? And is, I'm, I'm ending. Why would God do something like that when he knows that people are going to do stupid stuff? That's, that's crazy. Why, why would God do that when he knows people are going to be stupid and mean? <clears throat> because if there is no ability to decide to be in a relationship, there's one thing in the universe that we will never have. Ever. Love. It's not free will God's after. It's love he's after. It's the expression of his nature that he wants to see in his bearers of his image. 
He wants them to bear the image of Him, which is love. And so the way the universe is structured, that can happen. It doesn't automatically happen. So we say, you know, the reason God did this, He wanted people to have free will. That's, no, that's not it. That's, that's a way to do What God wanted was a universe in which love was possible. Thoughts and opinions, teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions. <laughs> right? So, so, so we come back to that. <clears throat> Are there things that God can't do? Yeah, he can't deny himself. He can't lie. Go read it. It says right there in the scripture. There are all kinds of things he can't do. He can't make somebody love him. He's created them in such a way, he's created in such a way that we have the capacity to love him. I, I, I will say again, I'm going to shut up. I, I, Greg and I were talking about this the other day. I, I honestly believe that too many of our views of God come from Plato and from Greek and Roman gods who are powerful. Hey, that comes with the word God, right? Powerful. This God is different. He is self-giving love. He's the high watermark, folks. He's not a power God. He's a self-giving Lover. And he's willing to accept the consequences of that. Greg said that he will love the people that hate him. So in your life, what kind, what's this particular life? We've gone a little further than I planned. What else is new? We're not doing number two. Okay. Surprise. <clears throat> we'll come back. <clears throat> but I want you, as you read, read through this this week. Chapter 8. Watch the Trinity in your behalf. What an incredible thing that you and I have the Trinity supporting us, working with. Next week, we'll get with this idea that the Father's purposing. He's taking the junk of life. He's taking the bad stuff of life and working it for our good. And anyway, i got to stop. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift our faces to you. You can see us. <clears throat> I think you want to see us. I this Trinitarian understanding of love that you've always been, that you've always experienced, that you had in eternity past with all the members of the Trinity, you now have opened yourself up to us fallen, selfish, self-centered creatures to heal us of our brokenness to heal us of our sin, to heal us of our self-centeredness. Would you, through the power of your Spirit as you pray for us, pray that we can begin to reflect more and more of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Father. Amen.